So we continue our study uh, of the book of Daniel. We're looking at chapter three. I'll read the text for us and then we will discuss it. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has de- issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut to pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of God. So as we continue our study of the book of Daniel, we're in a story that if you grew up in a Christian home or in a Christian church, you're probably familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, And that's with very good reason. While some of the text that we've already looked at in chapters one and two of Daniel is, uh, well, at at best, not very well known, and at worst, kind of confusing in some ways, uh, this text is very straightforward, and that's probably why you know it. It's an amazing teaching about God's ability to save his people. And so we're going to do a couple things today. First of all, we're just going to walk back through the text. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me as I work through some of the things that that we see in the story. And then I want to back up to about a 30,000-foot view and look at three big application points of the text, okay? So this text starts with Nebuchadnezzar putting up this image of gold. And we said last time when we were studying chapter 2 that um, my opinion, at least, is that this image of gold was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Uh, There is some healthy debate among Christian scholars as to whether this was an image of one of the Babylonian gods. Um, The text is not specific in telling us one way or the other, but frankly, at the end of the day, it means about the same thing because the king of Babylon was essentially the high priest of Babylonian religion. So whether you worshiped the king or the god, you were essentially worshiping the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar's command was that everyone was supposed to worship this golden image whenever the music played. And so everyone obliged Nebuchadnezzar except these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we learned uh, about in the previous chapters. Uh, It seems that this act of defiance uh, was not as well known as maybe we would assume. Uh, I tried to look for a number of different images to try to conceptualize this for us as we think about this. Um, This was one of the better ones that I found, but even this, I think, doesn't do justice to probably what happened. Um, It wasn't probably like this, where everyone saw these three guys just standing while everyone bowed down, because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even notice that they haven't followed his command until someone else comes and tells him, right? It seems that what they were doing was actually pretty subtle. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it does reinforce one of the principles that we brought up in chapter one, which was uh, polite minimalist resistance to Babylon, Right, this idea that if I'm going to resist Satan's work through the society around me, I don't have to do that in making a big show of it. I do it because I'm faithful to God, not because I'm trying to prove something. And it seems that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing this as well. However, of course, somebody did see them. And so they report this to Nebuchadnezzar. They tell him that there are these three guys who you put into provincial authority and they are not obeying your commands. Uh, Now, what's interesting is that Nebuchadnezzar calls them in, but the way that he treats them, I think, is unexpected, even with the short little bit that we've known Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the guy who was going to kill all of his wise men and destroy all of their houses simply because they couldn't interpret his dream. Nebuchadnezzar is a guy who is not afraid to just off somebody if he doesn't like them. And yet, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come in to see Nebuchadnezzar, he actually, first of all, asks them to explain themselves and then gives them a second chance to worship this golden image. Now, we're going to unpack that a little bit later, but just for now, notice that that's that's how Nebuchadnezzar treats them. 
But their answer to him, I think, is really interesting. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer him by saying, we do not need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. Now, there's some argument among scholars as to what exactly they mean by this. Were they, were they saying this because they just knew that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't understand their, their belief system? Um, maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure. What I think is actually more interesting for us to do, though, is to consider, like, how do we react in situations similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Like, when someone challenges our way of living, our belief system, what's our reaction? If you're anything like me, you look for opportunities to defend yourself, to do literally the exact opposite of what these guys do. You look for answers. You ask your pastor. You look it up online. You go back to your Bible or your catechism, and you're, you're looking for the answer to these questions because you want to prove yourself. I'll be honest with you. There's a, a sinful part in me that needs to prove myself when it comes to my faith. Like, of course, there is the, the part of me that believes in Jesus and loves Jesus for who he is. But there is also the part of me that is intellectually trying to prove myself. And in some sense, maybe my obsession with learning as much as I can about the scriptures is so I can prove myself. And I repent of that, that that's not what God calls me to be. Of course, he calls me to learn his scriptures, but not to prove myself. I mean, God is so true and so real and his resurrection that we believe in happened and cannot be disproven. So much so that we should not feel ashamed when people criticize our belief. How quickly, though, we become self-conscious, right? When someone says to us, how can you live that way? How can you believe that? You're so close-minded, bigoted, fill in the blank. We've almost become ashamed. You know why? Because that's Satan working on you. When you know the truth, you can believe in the truth regardless of what sort of lies or shame people try to put on you. You know who Jesus is. You know what Jesus has done. You do not need to defend yourself before other people. As the Bible says, let God be true and every man be a liar. You know what is true, so you believe it. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't look for answers, that we shouldn't engage in apologetics to try to find ways to help other people see the the validity of our position. But we ought to have no shame in what we believe. They continue with their answer by saying, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve the image that you set up or your gods. Now, I think what's interesting about this is the awkward grammar of what they say. Did you notice it? At first, he says, they say, God will deliver us. But then in the very next sentence, they say, but if not... (laughs) Which, if you're thinking about that, that doesn't make sense. Like, on the one hand, they should have said, he will deliver us, and then they would have stopped talking, right? Because they totally believed he would. Or, on the other hand, they could have said, he might believe, uh, deliver us, or probably will deliver us, but if not, we still won't serve your gods. But they don't say it that way, right? They say, he will deliver us, but if not. And that should make us zoom in on that statement for a moment and realize what they're saying. They're saying that they believe that no matter what happens, they will be delivered, But if in this case they are not delivered from this specific instance, they're not going to give up worship of their God. To say it differently, they believed one of two deliverances was going to happen. Either they were going to be delivered from the fiery furnace, which of course they were, or they believed that if they did die in the fiery furnace, they were going to be delivered from this world of sin and death and into their father's arms. And the beauty of their faith is that it is our faith as well. 
that whether we suffer, whether we even die for our faith, that means deliverance. The things that you're struggling with, whether they're small or they're big, they're as big as Western civilization crumbling, or they're as small as you're sick when you wanted to go on a vacation, like any of that, you're going to be delivered from it. Maybe not in this life, maybe you will suffer, but you have the ultimate hope that at the end of all of it, you will go to be with God. And so why would you worry? All of these things are a passing dream. They are not forever. The pain you feel, whether it's emotional or it's psychological or it is physical, is going away. The frustration that you feel, it is passing away. The anger that you feel, it is passing away because God will deliver you. And even if he doesn't, in whatever it is that you're struggling with, you know you have that ultimate hope. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like this answer, of course. He, he gets so angry that he gets them to heat the furnace up seven times hotter than what it originally was. Now, it's probably not like an exact calculation, like they got their thermometers, or thermos, uh, thermometers out and were like, all right, what's seven times? You know, they, they just heated it up as, as hot as they possibly could make it, so much so that even getting close to the fire caused people to die, right? They, they have these guards who bring the men to the edge of the furnace and they die. They don't even throw the guys in, they die, and because they're tied up, they just kind of fall into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like it. Now, I wanted to, again, try to find an image that sort of helps us understand what this looks like. This is, again, the best I could get. These furnaces that uh, the, the Babylonians were using were almost certainly for the big image of gold that they had just built, right? So they had to be big enough to hold these massive pieces of gold that they were going to put on this 100-foot statue. So they would have been something like a kiln, right, with a, a smokestack on top where the smoke could escape, and they could also put stuff in, but they also had a bottom opening where you could pull out the gold that had been um, purified by the fire. So more than likely, they fell in this top portion, however that looked, and they fell down in, and Nebuchadnezzar from a distance is looking in the bottom portion of this furnace. And what does he see? Well, you know, he, he doesn't just see the three men that he threw into the furnace. He sees four men walking around, unbound and unharmed. And the way that he says it is that the one looks like a son of the gods. Now, this is a good translation of what he literally says. And to some extent, we can understand it. Nebuchadnezzar is not a believer. He doesn't have the concept of son of God like we do from the New Testament. But what he is saying is almost unintentionally prophetic, isn't it? Sort of like Caiaphas, you remember this, when Jesus is on trial and he says that it would be better for one person to die for all the people. And what Caiaphas means by that is that there's an uprising in Jerusalem and that if Jesus would die, the uprising would go away. But what he is actually unintentionally saying is that if Jesus dies, then all of our sins are going to be forgiven. It's kind of that same thing. Nebuchadnezzar says, this one looks like a son of the gods, but what the, the vast majority of people who read this text have said is, it's not just a son of the gods. It is the son of God. It is Jesus. Before he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary at Christmas, Jesus showed up to be with them. And you know what happens, right? They walk out. Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. They walk out, and they have not been affected by the fire at all. There's not even the smell of smoke on them, which uh, I love a good backyard campfire, but I smell terrible afterwards, right? These guys didn't even smell like smoke. And they were promoted to higher positions in government, and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar made a decree that no one could say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So now having seen the whole text, I want to pull back and give us three big points that this text teaches us. And these are the points that I have, and they're the same as they are on your notes if you're following along with the notes. The first is the tension in Babylon. Second, our faith in Babylon. And third, our savior in Babylon. So first, the tension in Babylon. 
Um, There is a tension that Christians must have as we live in Babylon. So like we've said for now a couple weeks, for those of you who maybe haven't been with us for the last couple weeks, what we're saying is that this Babylon that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in 600 years before Jesus came is prototypical of the anti-Christian society that we continue to live in today. A society that isn't necessarily persecuting Christians in a targeted way, but subtly, slowly is chipping away at our Christianity, slowly trying to get us to agree with what the world believes rather than what the Bible says. There's a tension that every Christian has to hold as they live in our Babylon today, and it's the same tension we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego engaging in in the text. On the one hand of the tension, we must resist Babylon. We must resist Babylon. Um, It's very obvious, right, that that Nebuchadnezzar puts up this image and then he says everyone has to worship this image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it. They won't worship the image. And I think that gives us uh, maybe a a sort of mental out to the text saying like, okay, well, no one out here is putting up like an image of gold that we're all supposed to bow down to. And so what does this text actually have to say to me about how I live my life? Uh, But I actually think quite a bit. Nebuchadnezzar's intention with this image of gold was to unite all people under one large narrative. You can see it kind of in the way the text is written, right? He he commands all people of all nations and all different languages to worship this image. Well, what's implicit in that? That he lives in a multicultural society, which makes sense. The Babylonians were conquering people group after people group and trying to assimilate them into this large thing they called Babylon. And I don't know if it's because of the, the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had just had, that Daniel had interpreted for him, where he saw this statue with feet of iron and clay that were symbolic of a nation that was divided because the many different cultures that existed in that nation could not get on the same page and therefore the statue crumbled. Or maybe he's just a savvy guy and he knows better, but he's trying to work against this. He's trying to say, let's have a big narrative that we all agree with. Let's all get on the same page. We all worship the image of gold. We all worship the Babylonian gods. Now notice also in this, he doesn't say, all you nations and you other languages, you need to stop worshiping your gods. He just says, in public, we're going to worship this god. Now you might say again, well, that's not what our culture is doing to us, is it? It absolutely is. Have you ever heard a statement that People don't talk about politics or religion in polite company. What is that subtly saying? You can believe whatever you want on your own terms, in your own privacy, of your own home, but don't talk about it in the public square. You can't be a Christian publicly. You need to be a Christian privately. What you believe in your head is us fine. We don't have anything to say about that. But when you come out into the world, you have to abide by our rules. Now, again, you might not be able to see this, so let me give you some examples. Let's think about your work life. At your work, you may have colleagues or competitors who are pushing the boundaries of what is legal. Or even if they're doing something that is perfectly legal, their attitude toward making money is thinking first about themselves or maybe their shareholders rather than the people that they are serving or the betterment of society. And you think to yourself, well, if they're doing that, I can't keep up with them unless I also am pushing the boundaries of what is legal. And so you compromise what you know to be true about Scripture, right? That, that we ought to be honest, that we ought to be good neighbors, that we ought to serve people with our work rather than gain for ourselves. But if you give in, what are you doing? Well, you're privately a Christian. You say you are at home and at church on Sunday, but publicly, you've bowed to the image. What about your relationships? Some of you are dating or you want to be dating. 
Do you date like the rest of the world? Are the methods that you go through to try to find someone to date the same as the rest of the world? When you get into a relationship, do you treat your relationship the same way the world treats it? Do you try to find out if this is the person to marry the same way the world tries to figure out if they want to marry somebody? Is sexual intimacy on the table for you? You know what the Bible says about finding someone to marry who believes the same things you do? You know that sex outside of marriage is against God's will for your life? And you might say privately you're a Christian, but in the public, you've bowed to the image. Some of you are married. Do you treat your spouse like the rest of the world treats their spouses? Speaking ill of them, maybe behind their back or maybe right in front of their face? The old ball and chain, you know how men are. Do you see your spouse as a person to love, not someone who is loving you? Do you see your relationship as primarily moving from you towards them, not them towards you? You can say you're Christian in private. You know what God says about Christ loving the church and that we ought to love our wives that way, husbands. Or the way that, that the church submits to Christ, wives, you, you ought to submit to your husbands that same way. We, we love that privately, but in, in public, we've, we've bowed to the image. How about how you spend your time? Are you running around, hurried, from thing to thing, trying to prove yourself? Prove yourself to be a good employee, or a good mother, or a good friend, or fill in the blank. You know what the Bible says that you're already a finished product in Christ, that, that it is finished means it is finished when Jesus says that, that you're forgiven, you're free from any obligation to prove yourself. And you like that in private, but in public, you bow to the image. How about the entertainment that you consume? Do you consume the same shows, the same TikToks, the same YouTube videos as the rest of the world? Do you spend the same amount of time on those things as the rest of the world spends on those things? Do you excuse away entertainment, saying something like, well, I don't actually believe that, or it's just a show? Can I just step aside for a moment and say that's literally bowing to the image? Like there's literally an image and you are saying, I don't want to give glory to God in this moment, I want to give glory to whatever the image is. We wanna say we're Christians in private, but in public we bow to the image. How about how you spend your money? Um, if I looked at your budget, would I see it to be a uniquely Christian budget? I'm not just talking about your offerings. I'm talking about how you're generous with the people in your life. Do you spend your money on the same things that everyone else spends their money on? Or are you thinking about how to use the resources that God has given you to bless other people? In private, we're Christian, but in public, we bow to the image. Do you care about looking like the world, wearing the same brands, the same clothes, the same standard of living? Do you repeat the slogans of the world? Be yourself. I need to take some me time. I'm living my best life. In private, you're Christian, but in public, you bow to the image. Are you seeing this? Maybe to, to illustrate this just a little bit deeper, David Kinnaman, he's a, um, an author and now is the president of the Barna Group, which is arguably the, the most consistent uh, demographic research uh, group on church demographics. Um, David Kinnaman, in his book, Unchristian, uh, looked at the question of whether Christians are actually hypocritical, because this is a, a criticism that non-Christians lodge against Christians, right? You guys are so hypocritical. And so he wanted to look at it with stats, like, are Christians actually hypocritical? And his research revealed that they were. But he would look at many different behaviors, and across most of them, there was no statistically significant difference between the behaviors of Christians versus non-Christians. From how much TV we watched to how much extramarital sex we had. It was about the same. And I just want to ask, does that bother us? Does that bother us? 
Like in the Western world, it is so easy to believe that my Christian faith is something I have privately, something that's in my head. I believe what I want to believe, but you can believe whatever you want to believe. And while certainly we have space for other people to believe what they want to believe, we cannot bow to the image. We must be publicly Christian. We must be willing to stand up for these things. And let me give you one really practical way to make this happen. Um, There's a recent study that came out about sexual activity, uh, again, amongst Christians versus non-Christians, especially Christians who had gone to Christian educations, they'd gone to Christian schools. And again, the results were the same. There was generally no difference between those kids who had gone to Christian schools versus those who had not gone to Christian schools in their sexual behavior. One analyst of this data said, that means and shows us that it's actually not enough just to educate children in the ways of Christianity. We need to practice those ways with them. That this is lived out. That being a Christian is not simply about assenting to a set of intellectual ideals. It is about a way of life embodied because we are brought into Christ. And we then live as Christ to the world. Giving, him, or giving them the gifts that he has given us. We can't bow to the image. Otherwise we have forfeited the Christian faith. And we can believe whatever we want to believe about ourselves privately we have forfeited what Christ has given us. So that's the one hand, we must resist Babylon, right? We must not bow to the image. But we hold that intention with another thought. And that is that at the same time, we must love Babylon. You notice I I said before, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come in before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just off them right away, say, excuse me, toss them into the furnace or cut off their heads or something like that. No, he asks them a question. He's like, is it true? Is Is this really what happened? And then he actually gives them another opportunity, right? He says like, okay, I'm going to try this again. You guys know the standards, right? I'm going to tell the band to play and you guys, you get the chance to bow down to the image right now. And of course they don't, right? But it's interesting to me that Nebuchadnezzar gives them this sort of generosity to let them think about maybe wanting to bow down to the image again. Um, Again, it's not explicit in the text, but I wonder if it's just because they were so valuable to him. Right? They were governors of his provinces. They had shown themselves to be the smartest, wisest of his wise men. And he saw that if he had to throw them into the fiery furnace, that would be a massive loss for him. <laughs> what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did is they listened to what the prophet Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon to do, which is to love their city, to pray for it, to work for it, to settle down in it, to invest themselves in it. Even though they resist it and they do not let themselves become part of it, they are investing in the good of their city and their empire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were so valuable to Babylon that the fact that they were not willing to become part of Babylon created even a tension in those people that they were interacting with. So let me say this differently to you. As you conceive of your life as a Christian in this society, do you tend to find yourself wanting to be more Christian and less invested in your city or your country? Or the opposite? maybe to make this even more real, do you have the temptation sometimes as a Christian to want to pull out of everything of our culture? (laughs) Destroy my TV, throw away my phone, never listen to the news again, cut myself off from all relationships of people who are not building up my faith. You're good at resisting Babylon, but you don't love Babylon. Or on the opposite side, are you so willing to engage with the culture around you, to get to know people, to invest in their lives, but you struggle to not pull yourself out of the things that are attacking your faith and attacking your way of life? Are you an outstanding Christian or an outstanding citizen or neither? God would have us be both and hold those ideas in tension. 
That we are so valuable to our culture that people would say, if we lost them, we would lose something significant, and yet we never become part of Babylon. So that's the tension in Babylon. The next thing I want to examine is our faith in Babylon. Uh, When you're in Babylon, you have to have a very specific type of faith. Uh, Because in our society, as it is today, coming out of the vestiges of an ostensibly Christian culture, it is still possible for people to be what many call culturally Christian. Where like you, you remember some of the Christian stories, you have some of the same Christian activities, you might put Christian on a census form or something like this, um, but functionally you don't actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that that means everything for your life and you're going to live in that from now on. But as persecution becomes stronger and stronger, we're starting to see those cultural Christians fall off. Right? The number of people who have left the Christian faith in the last 10, 20 years is, is pretty staggering. Uh, But what most people will say is, in many cases, those were people who were already not regularly practicing their religion, going to church, being in Bible study, being in small groups, whatever your metric is. They were essentially cultural Christians. What is left in Babylon is a very specific type of faith, and we see it in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the type of faith you need to have in Babylon. And that is a faith that loves God for who he is. You love God for who he is. Notice how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they talk to Nebuchadnezzar, they say, uh, we do not need to defend ourselves to you because our God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him. Do you see what's embedded in that? We don't love God because God gives us stuff. We don't love God because God works for us. We love God because of who God is. And even if they would take our lives or our possessions or our reputation or our family, or our health. You could take all of that away because I still have God. I still have God. Only that faith will survive Babylon. But what we tend to have is a God plus faith, right? God plus something else that is functionally the thing we need to be okay. I need to be, I need to be wealthy enough at least to make the, the bills get paid, or maybe a little bit more wealthy than that. I need to have a reputation where people like me. Maybe I have to find a special someone to marry. I want to see my kids grow up to have more wealth than I did. Or maybe I I need to feel like I'm comfortable. We we make our faith into Jesus plus this. I'll be a Christian as long as everything is pretty much going the way that I want it to go. But as soon as it stops, very often the thing that falls off is our worship of God. I need to make more money so I can't go to church every Sunday, so I'll have to work on Sundays. But play that out in a thousand different other examples, right? I give up the things of God for the things of this world because I don't actually love God. I love the idea of God as long as the rest of my life is going okay. Christians who survive Babylon love God for who God is. The very thought of God being with me makes everything else fade to the background. That's the type of faith that we need to have. And finally, to wrap this up, I want to look at the Savior in Babylon. And we saw that, like we said in the text, Jesus shows up in the furnace with the men. And I think there are a couple things in there that are worth thinking about. They're not explicit in the text, so I don't want you to think that I'm saying this is exactly what the Bible says on this, but I do think they bring to mind things that we know are true from the rest of the Bible. The first of those things is to see that Jesus was in the fire with them. Jesus didn't stop them from falling into the fire. He let them fall in, and then he showed up. And in Babylon, we need to remember that's how Jesus is going to work. He is not always going to stop us from suffering. He's not always going to stop the pain. He's not always going to stop us losing. But he will be with us in it. 
He will be there and he will be found in the place where, frankly, he showed himself to be our Savior. Where was Jesus shown to be the Savior of the world? On a cross, suffering the most gruesome death that humanity had thought of up to that point. God makes himself known in suffering. We like to think that God makes himself known in amazing, beautiful, big, flashy things. He doesn't. He makes himself known in suffering. He makes himself known in water and the word and with bread and wine. He makes himself known in the ordinary and the things that, think, that people would not think are attractive. And the same is true for you. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever is your metaphorical fiery furnace, Jesus is there with you in it. He knows. He feels it. And he's also protecting you ultimately from it, right? right? In the same way that they went into the fire, but they were saved from it, you also will go into the fire, but you will be saved from it. The second thing to notice is that Jesus doesn't leave the furnace with them, does he? Four men are walking around in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar sees them. So he calls to them, come out, and three men come out of the furnace. Which calls to mind the fact that the reason that we are saved from the furnace is that Jesus was willing to be in the furnace and stay there for us. That on the cross, he experienced the full wrath of God, all of God's anger, all of God's punishment for all of our sins. He didn't get to get out of death like you get to get out of death. He had to suffer it, and he did for you. The full extent of what you deserve for your sinfulness was experienced by Jesus on the cross so that you would not have to experience it. So what you feel as pain or suffering or frustration is only a fraction of what you deserve because of Jesus, and Jesus is pulling you out of it. And then finally, the king calls them out of the furnace. Right, Nebuchadnezzar the king calls these guys out of the furnace, and there's no smell of smoke on them, right? Which calls to mind what we know from the scriptures, that there will be a day when the king calls our names, calls us out of the suffering of this world. Whether he calls us to his side in heaven or the resurrection of the dead comes first and he calls us into the new heavens and new earth, there will be a day when the king calls to you and he says, Fred, it's time to go. Andrea, you're free. Marguerite, it's time. He'll say that to us and we will go and live in the place that we always were supposed to live, the place where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain and none of those things even cling to us like smoke clings to our clothes. We're free. And we will be promoted, promoted to the right hand of the king, a royal priesthood, those whom God has called his own sons and daughters, new bodies, bodies that are not subject to the decay of this world but are perfect like Jesus' body. And we will live forever in a place where no one can say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or you. A place where only God reigns and sin has no place. So, hold in tension the fact that you live in Babylon. God has called you to love this city for the time that you are here. Lean into the suffering because it is there that you will meet God and know that the suffering will only last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Or as the great hymn writer said it, when through fiery trials your pathways shall lie, God's grace all sufficient will be your supply. The flames will not hurt you. God only designs your dross, the extra stuff to consume, and your gold, your faith to refine. May God do that among us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, as we live in the furnace 
of Babylon right now, as we stand up for the truth that we know is more true than any lie out there, we will suffer. You've said we will suffer. You've said we will carry a cross. Give us the peace of your presence with us in that fire. And then call us home. We ask that in your name.